All right, we're going to begin Micah chapter 4. As I mentioned, it is a positive text. We, we entered into the second cycle of sets of visions that Micah saw last week in chapter 3, which was a passage filled with judgment. Well, chapter 4 is like the flip side of the coin. It is a, a passage filled with hope and salvation. Uh, let's begin with a brief word of prayer, and then we'll dive into it. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word that provides us with a reason to hope, no matter what season of life we find ourselves in. Some of us have gathered this morning feeling rather empty. Father, would you fill us with the food of your word? Would you let them leave this place with the sure hope that they have in Christ all they need now and forever? And they will be under his reign safe and secure one day. And Father, for those of us who come feeling full, would you remind us even the securities and comforts of this world are not meant to last. They are but pictures of the full satisfaction coming in the kingdom of God consummated with our King Jesus. Help us now to pay attention to your word and receive the spiritual nourishment we need. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and mild and sweet their songs repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to man. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Those are two lines from a very famous song. It's called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's a Christian man who knew what it was to have many sorrows in this world. Uh, his first wife died along with one of his daughters. And then his second wife, who bore him six children, also met an unfortunate and very painful end. He, he was burned as she died in a, an accident. And for the rest of his life, he carried those scars. You, you might think that's enough suffering for a lifetime. But then one of his sons, his beloved son, Charles, he enlisted and went and fought in the Civil War. Uh, one day, Henry heard that Charles had been wounded. It was a little confusing whether he was in fact dead or just close to dying. But in that moment, his soul despaired. He heard some Christmas bells and knew the song that went with it, singing of the coming of the Savior Jesus and peace on earth. And yet his life seemed so very different than that. Have you ever been in a moment in your life as a Christian where it seems like the promises of peace on earth, of the goodness of God coming to, to kiss us, seem almost hollow, almost like they're mocking you because of the, the deep despair and pain that you're living with? Difficult days like that are not strange to the Christian life. In fact, as you Take the time to read biographies of Christians that have lived before you, or even just to live long enough as a Christian yourself. You, you come to realize that injustice and pain and evil and, yes, even wars, they are part of what it means to live as a servant of Jesus. 
Uh, I mean, this week we had a horrible reminder of that as we watched the news feeds coming from Afghanistan. Where can you find hope on days that seem hopeless? Well, I hope your answer would be in the word of God. That's certainly the answer that Micah would give. And it's why Micah chapter 4 is in your Bible, to convince you that you have a place where you can have secure hope and the promises of God for a better day coming. As Christians, we need to absorb this truth, that there is a day coming where we will remain under the reign of God forever. But there are promises we can hold on to of a day that will be better than this one if we have eyes to see them. Uh, Our passage this morning is really just three different sets of promises. There are three visions of this better day that's coming. And so we'll move through this passage in three points. Three reasons you should have hope today, even if it's a difficult day for your heart. First is that you should have hope because God will, God's reign will rise. Because God's reign will rise. That's what we'll see in verses 1 through 5. Second, you should have hope because a remnant will be reborn. That's in verses 6 through 10. A remnant will be reborn. And then finally, you should have hope because transgressors will one day be trampled transgressors will one day be trampled. That's in 11 through 13. Let's begin in that first section, one through five. Have hope because God's reign will one day rise. You might even say before our eyes. Right at the beginning there, we get a sense that this is a forward-looking prophecy, what they call foretelling. The first words, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Micah is seeing a vision of something coming, and it's worth pausing to remind ourselves of how this works in the prophets. Uh, In the prophets, very often, when they see future events, they see multiple historical events kind of blended together. In this case, there are at least three events that these uh, visions that Micah sees will find fulfillment in. The the first would be just a short time in the future, about 100 years in the future, in the exile to Babylon. Babylon. When Judah, like Israel before it, would be conquered and taken away from their land and left wondering, where is God in the midst of all of this? The second moment of fulfillment came a few hundred years after that, probably about 500 years after Micah's time, at the cross of Jesus Christ. In his arrival on this earth, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. That is the the second event that Micah will see visions of. And and then there's a third event, much further into the future, the second coming of Christ. Now, I won't tell you how many hundreds of years into the future that is because I don't know when that will happen. But Micah sees visions of that moment coming. And the visions he sees are meant to fill our hearts with hope. That first section, uh, after he tells us this is one of these visions of the future, uh, one particular image comes into view, and that is of a majestic mountain. You see, that mountain of the house of the Lord. 
Now, in Israel's time, people would have understood that the mountain that God dwelled on was that of Zion. That was the, the mountain that the city of Jerusalem was built onto the side of. It is where the temple mount, another hill outside of that city was. It was understood that you went up to worship God. That wasn't just an Israelite idea. Remember the high places, the mountains and the hills, that's where all the gods of the pagans worship were to be worshiped also. But here we see that there is something special about this mountain that Micah sees. Because this mountain rises before his eyes. It is called the, the highest of the mountains. It's actually lifted up before him above all of the hills. It, it's as if Micah sees this image of God's reign get so big that there is no question who is the biggest, baddest God on the block? You, you can tell that the mountain is a stand-in for God's reign by what comes next. Uh, the second half of verse 2, the, the people start flowing toward it so that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The scene is of the nations gathered not to, to conquer Judah, but instead gathered to come under the reign of Judah's God. The people are like a flood, so thick that it fills a plain. They, they gather around this mountain, eager to hear from Israel's God and to walk according to his rule. What a, what a vision that he sees there. And what's the result of that gathering that he sees? Well, it's a transformation of the people who gather close and a transformation of the world around them. We see that justice and safety and satisfaction mark this people. God judges between them. There's no reason for them to fight anymore. And in fact, we see that we're even told that all wars cease. It, they, it's so much so as war, a thing of the past, that they take their swords and their spears and they turn them into gardening tools. No longer does anyone take up arms against each other. There's no more conflict because God's good reign is here. Verse 4 tells us that everyone's satisfied. They sit under their own fig tree. They, they have what they need and they want no more. And I love that wonderful promise. And no one shall make them afraid. There are no more enemies, no more calamities, nothing to make them dread because God's good reign is here and we're told it will go on forever and ever. Now, brothers and sisters, if there is a God so high above all the other supposed gods of this world, who can provide a glorious future like that? Who else should we worship? And that's really the point of this vision. Who else is there worthy of the allegiance of God's people except God himself? Now we live in a day and a time, much like many that have come before it in some ways. There have been people that have been promising that they will usher in a golden era of peace and prosperity as far back as I can trace history. The Romans thought they had it figured out. World War I, many people called it the war to end all wars because we figured out in the Enlightenment how to be civilized and to make treaties. Uh, 
That worked out until World War II came around. Politicians and people with power and lots of guns behind them, they, they think, or at least they claim to think, that they can give you the safety and security and peace and prosperity that you desire and deserve. But their promises keep coming up empty, don't they? And as Christians, we, we understand that this should not be a surprise to us. Because there is only one person that can bring lasting peace to this world. Only one person that can satisfy the innermost longings of the human heart. And that's Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of this lifting up of the mountain of God that draws the nations to himself. Uh, John 12, 32 uh, Jesus was told that there were some Greeks that wanted to come and talk to him, and he refused the meeting and said this to his disciples. It's not yet time, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, in being drawn up to the cross to die, and then drawn up to, from the grave to live, and then drawn up to heaven to reign, Jesus has drawn the nations to himself. Through the preaching of the gospel, through hearts being remade from the inside out, Jesus has made this wonderful reign of God a reality inside his church. Do, do you realize that's what happens every time we get together? Uh, this is what makes church different from social clubs and even places where you could go to talk about some common philosophy. When you come to gather at church, you're coming to gather with people that have been brought by Jesus together as one into a new nation, into a people for himself. Inside the church, we should see the marks of Jesus' reign. We should see hostilities cease, even across nation and ethnic boundaries. We should see people put down their swords and their spears, and instead welcome each other as brothers. We should see contentment, because we know Christ is all we need. We don't need to go grabbing after people's stuff. We should see security. Is there any place that should be safer than in the church of the gathered people of God, the church of Jesus Christ? We should see a sense of hope. Of all people in the world, there is a sense that Christians should be most hopeful of all. Uh, it wasn't long ago, someone asked me if I'm optimistic about the future. I said, that's a, actually a complicated question. I'm not optimistic about the direction our country's going. I'm not optimistic about even Western culture in general. I'm not optimistic that life will be easier for my kids than it was for me. And yet I would term myself the greatest optimist on this world. Because I hope that there's a day coming beyond all of those days. A day when all the wars and injustices and difficulties will just be a thing of the past. A day of perfect peace and righteousness under the reign of King Jesus. I hope you have that same sort of optimistic outlook on your eternity, if you were found in him. The first section of vision, we saw here this rain that will rise one day and began raising at, 
that rain began to rise at the coming of Jesus and one day will be fulfilled when he comes back. The second, the second coming to reign on earth forever. Second thing that we see, though, gives us help for our hurting hearts today. That is, we see a remnant will be reborn. A remnant will be reborn. That's what we see in 6 through 10. Have you ever had a sense that things are about to get a whole lot worse before they get better? I was a, a junior high pastor once. And that meant that one of my regular duties was to go on weekend retreats with 70 to 80 7th and 8th graders. Uh, it took a special type of volunteer to voluntarily sign up for things like that. I always was very thankful for them. Uh, I had one retreat that I had a sense was going to be a little more difficult than the others. The, the bus ride was a little chaotic. I got several calls from the bus driver saying that the, some boys were being a little rowdy. So I started working myself up in my head how I was going to lay down the law to keep them in line as soon as they got off the bus. So I set a meeting where we would establish the rules and keep all the lines straight. Well, everyone got off the bus and they went to their cabins to drop things off. And I went into my cabin to drop my things off. And as I walked in, I saw a group of boys running past without shirts on seemingly yellow, yelling some sort of war cry. And I thought, oh boy. My nose also detected that something was already wrong. Now, junior high boys already have a unique smell to them, usually. But I distinctly smelled a type of spray deodorant that was very popular. And I thought to myself, I wonder if one of those boys used what's called an axe bomb. And Axe Bombs, you get a can of spray deodorant, this overpowering stuff called Axe. You use tape to hold down the application button so that it just releases without end. And then you throw it in someone's room and then you hold the door shut. A little bit of chemical warfare. <laughs> well, it turned out that no less than three Axe Bombs had gone off in the first 10 minutes of the retreat. And I knew it was going to be a very long weekend. Now, Micah and the people living in his day undoubtedly knew things were about to get a whole lot worse. They may have dodged Assyria like the nation to the north, Israel, but it was just a matter of time before Babylon would come calling their number. In verses 6 through 7, we see that nation one day being carried off to Babylon in what is described as a very painful, traumatic experience. It will be a time of, of crying, of wailing. And yet Micah wants the people to know that even as this happens, this will not be an exit for God's people. It will be an entrance into a new era of life. In verses 6 through 7, he gives them an image of God gathering a remnant. It says, in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, Micah sees a, a rabbly bunch People that are lame are probably because of their injuries inflicted upon them by their oppressors, the Babylonians. 
People who have been afflicted by his discipline. You might say the leftovers that survived his judgment. And yet, paradoxically, this people are gathered together and made into a strong nation. Surely this is a work of God. Now, the word that's used to describe what God's doing is he is creating a remnant. A remnant is one of those theologically loaded words in your Bibles. If you read through Joel or Zephaniah or Isaiah, you'll see that same idea of remnant come out. the, The basic idea is that through God's judgments, as severe as they might be, God will always preserve a people for himself that he will save through those judgments. That at the other side, he will save a portion of those who went into the fire of judgment. They will come out scorched, yet intact. Here, Micah sees that exact reality happening. God is promising to take this rabbly bunch. It doesn't look like they have much life left in them. And to strengthen them and make into them a mighty nation. Now, he uses a different image to communicate the same idea in verses 9 and 10. Uh, This time, it's with the image of childbirth. You can see that coming out in verse 10. uh, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. In this case, the pain is them going into exile. But remember, exile is not an exit for them. It's actually an entrance into a new life. All that pain is going to result in something, a a new life coming forth. They shall be rescued. The Lord will redeem them. Micah's telling them as hard as it will be to be under the thumb of the Babylonians. As far away as it might seem as they are from God's place under his rule, as hard as it might be for their hearts to hope, That they must continue to have faith because God has promised. God has promised he will not always treat them severely. He will draw them back to himself. And when he does, they will experience life even more fully than they did before they left. Now, as we think about the way this is fulfilled, we need to think about the reality that Jesus is the one that brings God's people back from exile. Uh, It's hinted at in this passage in verse 8. We're told that kingship will come from the daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, Next week we'll tease out this idea of how Jesus is the coming king that brings God's people back from exile. But remember, Jesus came to heal the lame, to set the captives free, and to do all of that by the forgiveness of sins that he accomplished by giving his life as a sacrifice on the cross. And what does that all result in except a birth, a new birth? Remember John 3, 3? Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As a Christian, we know what it is to have to go through a sort of death in order to find true life. The pain of repentance and dying to ourselves is replaced by the joy of having eternal life in our hearts through Jesus Christ when we turn to him in faith. Now, students, in my years as a student pastor, one of the things that I found was very common is that students need to hear this over and over again. Nobody can 
make the decision for you to trust Jesus and be born again for you. No one can give that type of saving faith to you. It doesn't happen by you being born into a Christian family. It doesn't happen because your parents or grandparents want it for you. No one can strong arm you or guilt you or force you into it. That means you need to decide for yourself. Will you endure the pain of confessing your sins to God? And will you experience the new birth as a Christian? I hope you will. If you have Christian parents, I know they would love nothing more than for you to come and tell them that you want to become a follower of Jesus yourself. Now for all of us, we need to remember that this pattern that saves us is also the pattern at which we walk through this world as pilgrims. That we go through again and again little exiles followed by salvation one day to be found when our Lord Jesus returns. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves dealing with depression. When the darkness in our own hearts makes us feel lonely and doesn't feel like there's any way out. We shouldn't be surprised when we feel lonely. When it feels like friends are few and far between. When maybe we're like the black sheep of the family, even when we've tried to be faithful. We shouldn't be surprised when our jobs don't go the way we thought they would. Or our neighbor rejects our attempts to love them. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by any of these things because we know our ultimate joy is coming. That this life may be filled with groanings and cries of pain, and yet, compared to the weight of glory coming, they are a light and momentary affliction. Dear brothers and sisters, I don't know what it is you may be walking through with the Lord this week. Whatever it is, would you let your heart hope? It won't always be like this. These endless tears won't go on forever. There's a de better day coming. A day full of comfort and satisfaction and never-ending peace. When your King Jesus returns and your joy is made full. One of the things that I've noticed as a pastor is as I have had the great privilege of making visits to those who are close to the end of their earthly life. How much sweeter these promises of the world to come seem to happen in a Christian's heart. There's something that God does very regularly, that as our hopes in this world fade, the hopes of the life to come in Christ, they become all the sweeter. If you're a young Christian, this is one of the lessons you are meant to learn from older Christians. To watch the way that they suffer with the sorrows of this world and have hope in the life to come. So that one day when it's your turn, you won't be caught off guard. You won't think something strange is happening to you. Learn that lesson now before the difficult day comes. Well, these first two visions certainly give us a sense of comfort but there's still a large question left unanswered. What of justice? That's one of the themes of this book is God's anger over the injustices and evils present amongst his people. What is God going to do about the evil of human hearts and the actions which flow out from that heart? Well, that's what the final vision shows us. 
verses 11 through 13, transgressors will be trampled. Transgressors will be trampled. There, there's a, another gathering, very different than the one we saw at the early part of the chapter. Many nations come around God's city again, but this time they have evil in their hearts. They are looking to shame the sanctified city. Uh, second half of verse 11, 11, let her be defiled and let her eyes gaze upon her. The, these evil men are seeking to strip away the walls of Jerusalem and, and gaze on those forbidden places that only the priests were meant to see. This evil intention, though, it turns out is a trap. We're told in verse 12, they don't know that God has a plan that they are gathered for a very different purpose than what they intend. They are gathered to be trampled. They are gathered to be pulverized under God's punishment. Uh, the image that's giving is, given is of a threshing floor. That's where if you had your harvest of wheat or some grain, you would bring it into this place and put it on the ground. And then you would have your ox stomp on it until all the kernels of wheat were broken open and you were able to get to the edible bits on the inside. In this case, that wheat that is being stomped, the kernels that are being crushed, are God's enemies. And the ones that are doing the stomping, we're, we're told, the daughter of Zion, it is God's people. Now understand the, the irony of this. They would have understood that they had been the ones being tread upon by the Babylonians while they were in exile. They were the laughingstock, the, the ones that were being crushed. And yet God is telling him there is a, a day coming when they will be the ones doing the crushing. He's even going to give them special equipment for it. He's going to make their horn iron, their hooves bronze, so that they can defend themselves and ultimately bring the whole world under God's judgment. Now that's a troubling picture of punishment pulverizing wicked people again and again and again until there's nothing left but little tiny bits. And yet so often the prophets do give us uncomfortable images and truths to deal with, don't they? Because before a holy God, God's judgment in the eyes of sinful people is a troubling thing. I had a conversation with someone one time, I was trying to share the gospel at a dinner party and the guy told me uh, he had a problem with the Bible. He said, I can like the, the God of the New Testament, but the God of the Old Testament is awful. There's no grace anywhere in the Old Testament. I told him I, I thought he misunderstood the God of both the Old and New Testaments. That God has not changed. He hates sin every bit as much as he did before. And he loves so much more than we have any reason to hope or demand, even as more clearly in the New Testament, but not because his character has changed. You know, the Old Testament has these vivid images of God's judgment, uh, not to, to just to frighten us, to show God's a big meanie, but to show us the seriousness of our sin. In the New Testament, Jesus shows us how these passages are fulfilled. We, we shouldn't think that Christians are being called here to take up arms 
go out and conquer the world with guns and bombs for Jesus like modern crusaders. No, remember Jesus explicitly forbade his disciples from doing that very thing. Uh, John 18, 36, when Jesus was before Pilate, he said, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So what does this mean? If it doesn't mean that we're to get up and go punish the evildoers for Jesus, what does it mean? Well, remember that there's a theme running through your Bible of crushing, all the way back to Genesis 3. Remember that serpent that had fooled Adam and Eve and led them into sin? God gave a prophecy of what would happen to that serpent. He said there was one coming who would crush his head. How did that crushing occur? Well, when Satan was put beneath the feet of Jesus, as he conquered him on the cross, of Calvary. At the cross, Jesus himself was crushed, but it turned out that in his crushing for our sins, he crushed the power of the devil over his people. He conquered the very power of sin so that he could set us free. Jesus then is the one that crushes the power of evil, and one day, when he returns again, we will see the consummation of this moment when Jesus crushes all remaining opposition to his reign. He'll return with the armies of heaven and usher in the great and final judgment where every single person that's ever lived will have their thoughts and deeds laid bare and receive the recompense due for their sins. On that day, we will see that no one has really gotten away with the evil of their lives, that Jesus brings full and final justice. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but on the day when Jesus comes to execute that justice, his victory, if you're a Christian, will be your victory. That's what Romans 16.20 tells us. The Apostle Paul said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. On that day when all of God's judgment comes upon a sinful world, if you're in Christ, if you're united to him, his victory over evil will be your victory as well. Now, brothers and sisters, realize what this means for us as we live here and now, waiting for that second coming of Jesus. It means that we don't have to try and get even. When someone hurts you, you know, there's something in your heart that happens almost instinctively. The flesh within, within you wants them to hurt the same way you hurt. Especially if it feels like there are no consequences for their sin. We entertain thoughts of revenge, of ways that we can expose them and embarrass them, somehow make them feel as uncomfortable as we feel. But as Christians, we're told to push away all thoughts like that. Why? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. One day, Jesus will return, and on that day, there will be more than enough justice to go around. We need not worry that anyone, even someone that harms us, will ever get away with whatever it is they do. That means our role is simply to be faithful before God. 
as much as we can, yes, to make things right, to pursue justice as far as we can without sinning, but at some point to realize that our satisfaction may not come until Jesus returns. But brothers and sisters, he will return. And that means one day we will see every wrong righted under the feet of our Lord Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this image of God bringing judgment to this world should be a frightening one to you. Uh, maybe you like the idea of justice being done. Maybe you've even dedicated big chunks of your resources or of your time to try and pursue, to pursue justice in some way in society. It's not a bad thing. But friend, we need to ask ourselves the question, what happens when justice is applied to our own hearts and to our own sins? The Bible tells us that we are all sinners before God and the penalty due for sinners before a holy God is death. As Christians, we don't want you to be on that threshing floor one day. We don't want you to be crushed beneath God's judgment, which is why we want so badly for you to find what we found, the way to avoid the wrath of God by coming to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus offers you for full forgiveness of your sins because he gave his own life as a substitute for them. But you must admit you are a sinner. You must throw yourself at his feet and ask for mercy. And you must trust that he really can save you from the judgment of God to come. Friend, if you do that, no matter how dark the days may be that you have to live through, your heart will have reason to hope. Because you'll know the king that will reign over all that remains forever. You'll know the King Jesus as your friend and counselor and Savior and Lord. I hope you'll find that hope today. I hope you'll repent and put your trust in Jesus. For all of us that are Christians, let's remember what joy we should have as we contemplate the reality that we have found shelter from the wrath of God that never for us is it to be trampled beneath the weight of God's judgment again. We are not objects of his wrath, but objects of his mercy because of what we've received through Jesus. Your heart needs to be reminded that there is a day coming where you will remain under his reign forever. Brothers and sisters, would you remember that reality and would you let your heart hope? There's one more line to that hymn we began the service with, the, the, uh, the bells on Christmas Day. Because as much tension as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow felt in his heart, ultimately he dared to let his heart have hope. He said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, good will to men. Amen, brothers and sisters. Justice will be done and you can have hope because Jesus will come back and you will remain under his reign forever. Let's pray.